friends, it's Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live, where we look at what's happening in culture, politics, science, and spirituality through an integral lens, which is the lens that takes evolution, the procreate urge, or eros itself into account. So how's that for a mission? Welcome, everybody. It's Tuesday, May 12th. 2015, and I am coming to you from my home here in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm here as always on a beautiful, sopping, gloomy, rainy night with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How are you doing tonight, Brett? I'm enjoying this evening thunder shower. Yeah, you might even hear some uh, thunder in the background. You might. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So, Brett, you went to the movies this weekend. I did. I went and saw Avengers Age of Ultron. Yeah. And you were telling me about it. It's, I was interested because, first of all, it's a huge hit. It's uh, just, I think, a couple weeks released, and it's on its way to a billion dollars worldwide. It's the second biggest movie opening in history, uh, second only to the original Avengers movie, which was the first one a couple years ago. So a big, huge movie franchise with a lineage dating back to the Marvel comic books of the 60s with all the superheroes. And I remember them as a kid. I somehow didn't get into them because I was more of a Superman kind of guy. I was keeping it simple. Mm. You know, the Marvel universe is pretty complicated. But nonetheless, here they are, you know, making these movies. And it's it's, it's always interesting when something in terms of the pop culture hits a nerve. And... You were telling me that there's actually an integral story being told here. And I wondered if you'd share a little bit of what you told me with the listeners. I noticed these different people on the Avengers team, you know, represent these different uh, altitudes of development. And starting with like the Hulk, for instance, Bruce Banner is a very modern, postmodern kind of guy, but his alter ego, the Hulk, He waits for the group to call him forth when they need brute strength and aggression. And he's hard to control. He's like an impulsive two-year-old that weighs 1,200 pounds, you know. So he's like this, you know, this um, really primal force. The id. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The superhero id. And then there's Thor, who, of course, is the classic red power god. So he's kind of the tribal traditional Uh, sort of guy. I straddle him between tribal and traditional because he has a soft spot for us mortals. And he's self-important, but courageous and truly heroic, really. Um, He, I think he's a little bit neutered by the writers because if he was like a true incarnation of that value meme, he'd likely be pretty cruel to his enemies and maybe a little hard to like. But... And then there's Captain America, who I consider to be like traditional modern. You know, he was born out of science, but he was created during World War II to defend truth, justice, and the American way. You know, it doesn't get any more traditional than that. Similar to the atomic bombs, you know. When we get to Iron Man, you're at the modern, postmodern level. I think Tony Stark is the billionaire genius, and he values science and individualism, Uh, He's been 
He's been made rich by technology, especially weapons technology, but he experienced a kind of a change of heart midlife, and he stopped creating weapons, and he began using his knowledge to create peace. So you can see how they're evolving you know, as well. And then the most interesting thing to me was in this new movie, they introduced this character named Vision. This isn't giving away anything about the plot, but he's born out of this sort of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. um, project. And he has kind of, I guess he's sort of a flesh creature, but he's, he's a, maybe he's a cyborg. I'm not really sure. But what's interesting is he's really a cosmocentric intelligence and he's curious and compassionate about his friends and his enemies alike. So he's holding multiple perspectives. And when he came on the scene, the Avengers were there and they were afraid of him because this guy's super powerful and they didn't know what he was capable of. And, and they asked him, are you on our side or are you on Ultron's side? And he said, I'm on the side of life. So to me, wow. that guy's kind of the postmodern integral uh, mm-hmm. incarnation, which I think is neat. And what's fascinating to me is that, you know, I mean, I kind of doubt Stan Lee and the other guys that created these characters are thinking about this in an integral or a developmental sense. I think that's what's interesting to me. Is it seems like it just naturally, unconsciously, they represented these yeah. different memes, these like these archetypes. Yeah, know? well, it's that's an interesting thing and sort of a claim that Integral makes is that we're not a philosophy. It's actually the revelation of a pattern that exists, whether we believe in it or not. Right. And so, yeah, a lot of great literature and a great art uh, through time is about the clashes between these memes, between these altitudes. And, and the, you know, the drama that is just inherent in growth from one stage to the next. And any intelligence that would have all of them online and playing and interacting together, I just got to say, I'm really eager to see the movie because it yeah. smells integral to me. It's fun. And it's great to see it hitting a nerve. Uh, even though you can imagine that the orange management of the studio said, let's get every ar- archetype in there so that we can hit everybody in every culture. You know, it's hard to make a worldwide hit because, yes. you know, there's a lot of um, different cultures. So anyway, well, the very, most interesting cool. thing to me, you were talking about how these memes play off of each other. Uh, that is actually the most interesting thing, I think, about the Avengers. You have these relationships between all of them, and they all kind of have to make peace with each other in mm-hmm. order to operate as a team. And so you see these like miniature mm, conflicts within the group. And to me, the one between Captain America and Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, that's the most interesting one, this tension between Tony's sardonic attitude and the captain's wholesome personality. So know. that'd be green and orange. Yeah. Yeah, postmodern and mm-hmm. modern. Yeah. yeah, and then... Or even traditional, Captain America traditional. Yeah, yeah, yeah they kind of seem to straddle to me some of these yeah. like I was talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah. which I'm, we all do, I guess. I have this other theory, too, about how the, the villain Ultron is a larger-than-life representation of the postmodern deconstructionist agenda... Very similar. Oh, good lord! <laughs> very similar to the deep green resistance, but that's for another show, maybe. Yeah. Well, actually, it's for later in this show. It is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, yeah. Uh, Avengers. What is it? The something of Ultron. Age of Ultron. The Age of Ultron. We should all check it out. All right. 
Just a couple things. I wanted to thank you all for following us here to Integral Radio, which is where we're appearing this season, our new home in the Integral Life universe. And of course, Integral Life is the central web portal for the worldwide Integral community and also the home of Ken Wilber, who is the greatest of all uh, Integral philosophers, uh, my great inspiration and teacher, and his latest work appears on Integral Life. You can also find my work and more of my work on my personal blog, dailyevolver.com, and you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Brett was talking about the altitudes of development and how the superheroes of Marvel Universe sort of chart with the altitudes of development. And if you're interested in following that kind of charting, you can follow along with a couple uh, uh, diagrams that, Brett, you can link to them now in the uh, Integral Radio comments section. Yeah. And then if you're checking on this later, you can find them always under the Theory tab on the front page of the dailyevolver.com website. All right, I think we can get into our main topic for tonight. And it's a topic that I think is kind of difficult for integralists. It's a a difficult topic for me to sort of reconcile and for me to live it in my life. And the topic is specifically climate and climate change, but also in general, humanity's impact on the natural world. And how can we be happy and optimistic as integralists about the sacred world to come when we're poisoning the world that we have in the process? And I do think that is extra bedeviling to evolutionary thinkers. Because on one hand, we do recognize and celebrate the great gifts of development, particularly as humanity's moved into the modern and postmodern world. We've seen what the philosopher Daniel Dennett has dubbed the spectacularly tangible results of modernity. And the tangible results of modernity, to use another integral map, which is the quadrant map that is also attached there, you see that this is the realm of the third person or the right-hand quadrants, the material world. We see our gleaming cities, our ribbons of highways, airports, the communications networks, the creation of a worldwide virtual space. We see with modernity doubled and tripled lifespans, which are the result of sanitation, simple as that, medicine, and for the first time in history, an abundance of calories. In fact, our big problem is an overabundance of calories, which would be astonishing to anybody who lived in any earlier time. So that's the third person. In the second person with modernity, we get this decency uh, that just arises out of, you know, a history of tyranny where we have governments and laws that put sovereignty in the uh, vessel of each individual person and not the king or the elites. We have societies that become more pacified, far less violent, despite our collective neurotic self-image as human beings, uh, our image of being sinners that have been cast out of paradise, which is so prevalent in really every stage of, at least later stage of first-tier development. 
To the contrary, the actual facts are that human beings have gotten relentlessly, century by century, um, and are continuing to get nicer as time goes by. So that's the second person. And then the first person, the modern world gives us the freedom to really choose who we want to be and how we want to live and how we want to express ourselves. And it enables us to expand our circle of care from our family or tribe to our clan to our nation. And ultimately, as we move into post-modernity and, and, and a world-centric view, uh, our care extends to all beings in the world. And, uh, you know, we can even move to post-cosmic, uh, to, um, uh, to all beings known and unknown in the universe. Uh, so, you know, this, all of this represents a huge achievement in terms of the human uh, march of development. And so, you know, by those standards, we are living in a golden age, and we integralists appreciate that. But for those of us who are lucky enough to, uh, you know, receive these gifts, there comes a catch. And that is, we're only allowed, and this is interesting, we're only allowed to enjoy the golden age if we're willing to see that there are millions, indeed billions, of people and beings who are not living in the golden age. In Syria and Nepal, for instance. In slums and hamlets throughout the world, where we still have over a billion people living on under $1.25 a day. They're living in pre-modern squalor, ignorance, and tyranny that is the equal of virtually anything in history. We also have to see people who are leading lives that are outside of the mainstream or often living downright miserable lives right in our own backyard. People that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in Baltimore, the Eleanor Rigby's of the world, the lonely and lost people who are just alienated and personally unmoored by this crazy modern world where we don't even know our neighbors. And there are a lot of people who, you know, you see and you run into and you wonder, how are you even making it in this world? It's heartbreaking to see people who aren't equipped for that, but here they are. And so we have to make their well-being, all of these people, and their opportunity to join in the fruits of modernity in first, second, and third person, we have to make that our top priority, or else we don't get to enjoy it ourselves. It's the Bodhisattva vow. Nobody gets enlightened till everybody gets enlightened. And it's just something, again, that naturally comes online as we develop. It's, um, you know, God is good in keeping us um, focused on where not only our growth lies, but the growth of humanity as a whole. And then, of course, we can take, and this is getting into the topic of climate and, and um, ecology, is that we can take the biggest possible perspective. And that is the perspective of the planet. And we have to see that the costs 
of this great human success story is great in terms of the degradation of the atmosphere, oceans, uh, of the natural landscape as a whole. I saw two statistics recently that really floored me. One is that half of the land that's not covered by ice on this planet is colonized or utilized in some fashion by human beings. The human cancer, as one of my environmentalist friends refers to humanity, has metastasized and spread to 50% of the planet. So that's one statistic. The other is a mind-blowing statistic to me from the World Wildlife Federation in a study they did last year that showed that of all the animals that existed 45 years ago, this is 1970, of all the animals, we're talking uh, mammals, reptiles, fish, that existed 45 years ago on the planet, only half of them exist now. We're not talking species, we're talking the sheer population of mammals, reptiles, and fish, uh, cut in half in 45 years. And this is an untenable trajectory. Interestingly, it's not necessarily untenable technically or logistically. Human beings could live with actually a lot less of the wild world and a lot less biodiversity. We could, one, keep an eye on endangered species and rescue them as they you know, become in a crisis situation. We could rescue them into zoos and research habitats. Or we could at least freeze their cells for some future reanimation. And if we up our factory meat production, we can more than make up for the loss of animals that, you know, millennia of people have used for nourishment and hunting and trapping and so forth. Uh, we can more than make up for that with animals that are living in what are known as confinements, factory farms, meat farms which are very efficient at putting chickens in and meat out. And, you know, we can grow a full chicken now in six months. It used to take a year or two. So there'll still be plenty of meat to eat. So, yes, we can continue to live with less biodiversity, technically. But, and this is interesting, the problem, you know, what we run into isn't technical, it's moral. Who would want this world? It turns out actually that nobody does, particularly, or at least people at traditional on up who would even understand the question. Not even the most pro-development, anti-government conservatives. Not even Charles Krauthammer. And I don't know if any of you saw his latest column. He's, of course, one of the top three or four leading conservative columnists in America. And in his latest column entitled Free Willy, which, of course, when I saw Free Willy as the title, I thought it was going to be some diatribe against Bill Clinton, you know, in a way of bringing down Hillary, which is the, what most of the conservatives are doing a lot of the time these days. But actually, no, he was referring to the whales kept for our amusement at SeaWorld. And he was talking about the plight of animals and was arguing for moral development, which I like. 
coming from a conservative. He starts by ruminating about the founding fathers. And I often bring this up myself. Uh, in, in the case of Thomas Jefferson, he, we have a man here who wrote the Declaration of Independence, which is the seminal manifesto of modernity, affirming that every man is radically free. And he wrote this while he was also, as a Virginia farmer, buying, owning, and selling other human beings as slaves. It's astonishing. And Charles Krauthammer writes, while retrospective judgment tends to make us feel superior to our ancestors, it should really evoke humility. Surely some contemporary practices will be deemed equally ab abominable by succeeding generations. The only question is, which ones? I've long thought it will be our treatment of animals. I'm convinced that our great-grandchildren will find it difficult to believe that we actually raised, herded, and slaughtered them on an industrial scale for the eating. And I love that. Later in the column, he says, I myself confessed to living in Jeffersonian hypocrisy because he does eat meat. I'm in that category. A lot of us are. Uh, there's the, the, the denial is, is strong. The ability to willfully not see something because you think that your life, or at least your comfort and pleasure, depend on not seeing it, is an amazingly sturdy thing. And that is a moral challenge that I am myself dealing with, and I think a lot of us listening. And those of you who have stopped eating animals, I uh, wish you could uh, wave the magic wand for the rest of us. All right, so uh, let's look at how this all arises in terms of the typical politics of our time. And we see that there is a conservative and liberal polarity when it comes to development and environmentalism. We have these two competing views. We have, on one hand, the view of development as being constructive and productive. And on the other is the view of development as being pernicious and destructive. And these are the political poles and the spectrum that we deal with certainly here in the United States. So we have the folks on the right. These are, in, in terms of the developmental altitudes, these are the traditionalists and the early modernists. And they're holding up the pole for the position that development is good and look at the progress humanity has made, which is the story I told earlier. The pole on the left is being held by the progressives, the liberals, the postmodern green altitude people who see the limits of development. And basically, they are world-centric. This is the thing that comes online at uh, late modernity and post-modernity. Uh, therefore, they're more vigilant about the downsides and dangers of development in a finite world. And they have this sense of doom, and particularly to the degree that any of us integral practitioners are green, we have it too, as we see this human developmental juggernaut push up against the limits of a finite planet. So what we see as uh, integralists 
is that both sides of this pole belong in the first tier. And as such, they tend to think that their view is the only correct one, and that people who hold the other view are either co-opted or deluded or stupid or, you know, just yahoos. And this is the politics of environmentalism. So, from an integral perspective, we see that the idea of polarity itself is fruitful and powerful and brings a lot of energy to the system. There's a lot of energy in that struggle between the left and the right on this issue. And we see that as Walt Whitman wrote in Song of Myself, he said, out of the dimness, opposite equals advance. I love that. Out of the dimness, opposite equals advance. And this is an expression of the dialectic of progress, that we have a thesis, we have an idea of how things should be, then we have an antithesis, which is in opposition to that thesis. So all of a sudden, we then have two poles. We, they're holding opposite views. We're talking the difference between Fox News and MSNBC. And there's inevitably conflict, and there is inevitably, I don't know how else to put it, sex. I mean, our ideas want to have sex with each other. And there's this theory that with the internet uh, and all of the possibilities that are out there on the internet and just the you know, media environment in general, that people can sit in their own silos. They can stay in their own bubble and just listen to things that are supporting their own point of view. And that's certainly true, particularly at the early stages of any altitude development. We really want to have that stage of development reified. We really want to hear people agree with us. But there was a recent study, I saw it last week, uh, that showed that, that silo theory doesn't really hold water, that inevitably people run into opposite views of their own and actually begin to seek them out. And so as this happens, the rate of integration between these two poles, between the, the thesis and the antithesis, leads then to a new synthesis where you take the best of the mind and heart and juice of, of what exists at each of the poles, and you integrate them into a new structure, a new synthesis. And so at Integral, we do see that, yes, development is good in some very important ways, and development is bad in some very important ways. And we see that going into the future, the cure for the downsides of development is, and this is wonderful surprise, the cure is actually more development. It's not going back to a previous time uh, or a previous retro-romantic uh, past where we think, you know, everybody lived in harmony. That actually never existed. That's always been a paradise fantasy of the human mind. And that we just need further development of a more intelligent, loving kind. So at this stage of the game, it's not about fighting something. It's about supporting something. We recognize that 
there's a developmental urge itself. There is such a thing as eros that is operating in the world. And it is moving the world in all four quadrants to a more intelligent, loving, and powerful place. And it's doing it under its own power, or his own power, or her own power, or even our own power. It doesn't matter how we see the nature of things. What is important is that we see that we don't have to fight something or correct something as much as we have to support something that is happening under its own power. Or in other words, the updraft of first-person consciousness, second-person culture, and third-person technology. So with that in mind, then, we can revisit these examples of how the world is going to hell environmentally. And we can see that, uh, to start with the example I used of the animals, that the drop in the population of animals in the last 45 years has happened in the pre-modern world, in the developing world, as human beings take over more and more of what was previously wild and natural. This is true, or was true, 200 plus years ago in America, where the number of animals dropped by half when we moved from a, a, a pre-traditional or a more wild uh, indigenous ecology to a civilized ecology. But once we get to a modern stage of development, and here we're talking the first world, the North America, Europe, Japan, uh, the more developed countries. And these countries, the, the number of animals is stable. And so where we need to work with saving animals is in the pre-developed world. This is also true of the biomass and reforestation. I did a little pilgrimage, uh, Americana pilgrimage a couple years ago and went to Williamsburg, Virginia, which is a colonial town that's been restored in Virginia. And it's beautiful. It's, you know, uh, you pay, uh, it, it's a park. It was put together by the Rockefellers and it restored this old town and there's people in costume and it's educational and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's green and there are beautiful chestnuts and oak trees and pine trees everywhere. What was surprising to me and to a lot of people on the tour is that back in the late 1700s, when the town was actually built and lived in, there were no trees. In fact, they showed old newspapers. It was of great consternation to the community that all the trees had been cut down for firewood within a 50-mile radius. And this is true of early traditionalism, where Wood is your source of energy. Energy is really key to development. And we'll look at that a little closer in a second. But this is a story you see throughout the, the globe. Great Britain was almost completely deforested in the stage of development that is pre-traditional and has been reforested as the, the Great Britain has moved into more modern times. This is true of America and, and Europe also in general. And so human beings continue to impact nature uh, according to their technological abilities. And as we reach modernity, we get 
hip. I mean, there's actually a, a new sensibility that arises in our own consciousness where that we begin to value and want to conserve nature in a way that never occurred to us before, where we thought it was infinite. It was given to us by God to, you know, have dominion over. This was true of the whales in the pre-traditional uh, stage of development, or the traditional stage of development in, in the United States. When people burned whale oil in their lamps, there was almost a complete decimation of the whales, both in the Atlantic Ocean, and whalers went from the east coast of the United States down around South America, and were even well on their way to decimating the whales in the Pacific, at which point we discovered oil in Titusville, Pennsylvania, and changed from a whale oil to a petroleum economy. This was, you know, progress for the whales, at least. And I saw recently, uh, I think it was last week, actually, a study that showed that finally, and this is 200 years later, the population of blue whales in the Atlantic is now just where they were at pre-modern levels. We see also with population that as societies become more affluent, their birth rates decrease naturally. It's a matter of simple e economics. In earlier stages of develop, in earlier stages of development where there's no such thing as a social safety net or even a stable government, your social security is having a lot of kids and kids who were indoctrinated into the moral imperative that life is all about taking care of old people, just like you. And that is a very functional system in the absence of a modern economy. But as we move into a modern economy where we have an economy and we have a safety net and laws and civilization, then children become an economic liability, which is what they are now, and people respond accordingly. And they have fewer of them, to the point where in many of societies in the world, such as in Scandinavia, Italy, Japan, the worry is that there are not enough children being born to maintain the stability of the population. And yet we see headlines, and they're accurate, actually, that uh, we're going to have 9 billion people, currently we have 7 billion people, that we're going to have 9 billion people on the planet by the end of the century. And that's probably roughly true. But what you don't hear so much, because the media is geared towards fear, is that after that, after the majority, the center of gravity of world population becomes modern, then having children may still be a beautiful thing, but it's only one of many beautiful ways that we can live our life. And we see, like I said, more and more of this as countries develop. In, in, in America, we see it with millennials, the people born before the year 2000, who are choosing to live a more child-free life. I'm sorry, born before 1990, uh, choosing to live a, a child-free life. We also see, as people move into modernity, a natural move to urban living. We see that in the United States, for instance, just over 100 years ago, 85% of the population lived on a farm. It's now 2%. And of course, the urban lifestyle has a much smaller footprint 
than the rural or even the suburban setting. Uh, less lawn, less square footage, less energy per person, less uh, more efficient use of food, more efficiencies of every kind. And then also, of course, uh, <laughs> this is another of the features of urban living, is that we have more and better sex. And I'm not just talking physically. I'm talking, again, the communion that we have with other people and their minds and their thinking and their worldview. And it's just built into us. People want to be with people. The, you, we want to rub up against other people. And there's a vibrancy, creativity, and productivity that arises out of just being close to other people. And that's a natural attractor as people develop. And then there's the third person, the actual environment that we're living in, in the air and the water particularly. And we notice that as societies develop into modernity and post-modernity, as people become more affluent, they care more about the natural world and the world that they're raising their children in. And so we see that in first world countries, carbon dioxide has actually leveled off and is beginning to drop. Even as populations increase and the economies grow, because we've taken great pains to clean up our own air and water. Now, again, let's note that this is not a world-centric move. We're not necessarily looking to clean up the whole planet, but we're looking to clean up our city and our town. And that itself is huge progress. I remember growing up in the 60s and 70s in Western Pennsylvania, in the Steel Valley, uh, you know, the Rust Belt. Now it's the Rust Belt. It was a vibrant manufacturing, you know, there was mining and cars and steel and coal. And that was, you know, the, the heart of the industrial revolution in this country. But you didn't swim in the lakes and the rivers. And you certainly didn't fish. And if you did, you certainly didn't eat the fish that you caught in the lakes and the rivers. There weren't many of them. Most of the fish were gone. And the air was worse. I remember living in Youngstown, Ohio in 1978 in a basement apartment where every morning at 4 a.m., the steel mills nearby would release their Coke ovens. They would release all the fumes from the Coke ovens. And these fumes would crawl along the landscape. You could literally see them crawling along the landscape about two or three feet thick from the ground. And I was in a basement apartment, as I said, and I would get up at four in the morning and close my windows because the sulfur was, I would choke me. I, I would wake up from it. And that wasn't so long ago. This was 78. And all that's cleaned up. And this is what I refer to as the first stage of the environmental movement, which, again, does not require a world-centric view. This is environmentalism for traditionalists and early modernists. And you're seeing this happening really all over the world in what we might say this uh, second world countries, like China, where they are working hard and really consciousness is being raised as people walk around with gas masks and, you know, uh, that, um, you know, we want to clean up the nest that we're living in. We don't want our kids wearing masks out in the street. And that's the kind of environmentalism that, you know, as countries move into modernity, it's definitely good news, even though 
it doesn't really yet take into account the finite planet. They're still thinking about their own countries and their own cities at that point. But what does bode well for this continuing into the future is, well, we can see what's happening with, again, millennials as they move from more of you know what we baby boomers, we were into the acquire and own economy. We wanted to own stuff. For millennials, it's more of a rent and share economy where with the internet and with the proximity of people living together, it's easy to rent and share resources together. Brett sent me a quote from a sociologist and, and a thinker that I pay attention to, Jeremy Rifkin, and he summed it up really well. He said, millennials are already seeing through the false notion that the more we accumulate, the more we are autonomous and free. And I love that. Let me repeat that. He said, millennials are already seeing through the false notion that the more we accumulate, the more we are autonomous and free. What a relief, huh? He goes on to say, it seems that they are more interested in developing networks and joining the sharing economy than in consumption for consumption's sake. And I think that is, again, just an astonishing new emergent at the cutting edge of human and cultural development. And the other thing is that millennials are also eating less meat. There's a book that caught my eye that's in this sphere. It's a big bestseller in the New York Times bestseller list. It's sold over 2 million copies, which is a huge publishing achievement. It's been six months on the bestseller list, and it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. And this, I I love it. It it seems to me that it's about enlightenment in the third person, creating a life that's soulful, that's aware, uh, creating a home that is clean and organized, and, and I love this word tidy. And the principle of the book, the main principle, is that you start by going through all your stuff, the stuff in the kitchen, the kids' stuff, your wardrobe, the stuff in the garage, basement, office, whatever. And it's not about what you're throwing away, but what you're keeping. The default is everything goes, and what are you going to keep? Every item has to be rechosen. And how do we rechoose it? We hold it up, we look at it, and we ask ourselves if the thought of it staying with us is either enlivening or deadening. So we hold it up and, you know, how do we feel? Again, it's about enlightenment in third person. And I think it's really unique and really interesting that that has hit a nerve in the culture. And I think, you know, Forget the millennials. This is a naturally arising cure for us baby boomers who really have the sickness, if we are able, of affluenza, of just accumulating stuff with this idea that, again, as Rifkin said, autonomy and freedom depended on what we could accumulate, which it doesn't. So... 
I wanted to point out, I think something that has arisen in the culture here in the last couple of weeks that really accommodates this more integral view of how development can happen in a healthy way. And it's a, a manifesto that was written and released a couple of weeks ago by the Breakthrough Institute in Oakland, California. And it's called the Eco-Modernist Manifesto. And I think it could be called the Eco-Integral Manifesto. I think it really has a lot of integral content to it. It was written and signed on by 18 or 20 environmental thinkers and scholars and scientists. And, uh, you know, they're the usual suspects from Harvard and Stanford and Columbia and so forth. And I think it presents a, a path forward that, again, is as integral as anything I've seen. And their thesis, and let me just read it from the first couple paragraphs. They write, in an eco-modernist manifesto, they write, to say that the Earth is a human planet becomes truer every day. Humans are made from the Earth, and the Earth is remade by human hands. Many Earth scientists express this by stating that the Earth has entered a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, the age of humans. As scholars, scientists, campaigners, and citizens, we write with the conviction that knowledge and technology, applied with wisdom, might allow for a good or even great Anthropocene. So, you know, so I read that and already I'm hooked, you know, because I believe in this ever better future. But I'm also suspicious because they're writing that a good Anthropocene demands that humans use their growing social, economic, and technological powers to make life better for people, stabilize the climate, and so forth. And I note that that's second person and third person, but it's not really first person. The first person is the interiority itself, not just culture and technology, but for us to have a fully integral or good Anthropocene demands that humans use their growing consciousness as well. Consciousness, again, being defined as what I'm able to see. I'm able to see not just my world and my family's world or my tribe's world or even my nation's world, but I'm able to see the whole shebang. I'm able to see the global systems of climates, of oceans. I'm able to feel into the karmas of history. I'm able to feel into the, the interiority of other people and cultures. And this first-person realm, too, is real. This is a real world space. It's a place we live, and we want to notice it and take care of it and nurture that forward as well. Uh, but again, this eco-modernist manifesto is more focused on the second and third person. And I'm good with that. It's progress. And what they say is to create a good or even great Anthropocene, the age of humans, we need to do two things. Number one, we need to create more wild nature. I love that. They're saying that humanity must shrink its impact on the environment and make more room for nature. And to do that, two, we need to rely less on that nature that we've made room for, for 
our own human well-being. And in a sense, and I may overstate this a little bit, they're differentiating. This is one of the things of evolution is we differentiate things that are fused together into, you know, clear things that are separate, and then we integrate them. So they're creating two spheres of life on Earth. One would be the more human environments where there is a cycle of sustainability within the human bubble where civilization is contained. So food, shelter, energy, everything is cycled. And then there's a more wild natural world that lives on its own terms. And we recognize it as good, true, and beautiful on its own terms and leave it to be as wild as possible. And they have an interesting terminology for this. They call it decoupling. They say that decoupling the human realm from the natural world is antithetical to the previous idea. And this is really the green idea, and in many ways, the whole first-tier idea, that humans and nature are to live together in one glorious integrated paradise. And I think that might come later. But for this next stage of development, I think it's really, really interesting to think of them as being differentiated. So at any rate, this decoupling would feature a few things. One, it would feature intensified farming and food production. So modern food production. And, um, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, to think of the second and third world, the third, three or four billion people who, like those of us in the first world, would like to have meat if they want it, maybe two times a week, maybe three, four. I mean, every day is beyond their thinking, but they're going to want that. So, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be more factory farms and it breaks my heart, uh, but it's happening. You see that happening in the third world in China, in India. And there's an intelligence to that in terms of ecology, even as we grow beyond it in the first world, and I hope create, you know, palatable meat substitutes and artificial meats in the meantime, so that at some point here, we can emancipate the animals. Okay, so farming and food production. Two, that there would be high technology energy deployment that includes both nukes and solar. So nuclear power and solar power, they're big in both of those. And we'll get to them in a minute. There'd be three, the intensification of urbanization. Again, this is something that happens as people become more affluent. They want to move where the action is. And so these are the three pillars of their stool. Intensified food production, energy deployment, and intensified living in settlements. And this is the prescriptive path forward for the eco-modernists. So... Again, it's intensification and forward technology, not a retro-romantic vision that we have in green of going back to living as noble savages. In fact, they take that on head-on. They say in the manifesto, they write, the process of decoupling challenges the idea that early human societies lived more lightly on the land than do modern societies. Insofar as past societies had less impact upon the environment, it was because these societies supported vastly smaller populations. And I would also say that they had, you know, 
earlier technologies. It's harder to hurt the environment with a spear than it is with a bulldozer. But they go on, they write. In fact, early human populations with much less advanced technologies had a far larger individual land footprint than societies have today. Consider that a population of no more than one or two million North Americans hunted most of the continent's large mammals into extinction by the late Pleistocene, while burning and clearing forests across the continent in the process. Extensive human transformations of the environment continued through the Holocene period. As much as three-quarters of all deforestation globally occurred before the Industrial Revolution. And this gets to what we talk about a lot in Integral, which is that green postmodernism falls prey to what we call a pre-trans fallacy, P-R-E hyphen T-R-A-N-S, pre-trans fallacy, where they think that the way forward for humanity is actually to go back to the way it was in pre-modern and even pre-agricultural times, which, of course, is completely unsustainable, short of a major human die-off, which is why there are some people in the environmental movement that actually wish for the great human die-off. And um, Brett, you sent me a uh, an excerpt from a video, YouTube video from, what was it? Deep Green Resistance. Deep Green Resistance. And it expresses this radical view beautifully and explains why the environmental movement is often marginalized from mainstream thinking. So, Brett, play a little bit from this. Okay. Um, this is an excerpt from a trailer for their documentary. We haven't done very well over the last few thousand years. We've had militarism, we've had slavery, we've had misogyny, we've had these horribly stratified societies where there's the rich and the poor and chronic starvation and all the rest of it. I don't, I don't, what's wrong with saying let's abandon this and do what we did before, which worked. (laughs) We didn't destroy the planet for those first four million years. We actually participated. We look at this culture and we say, the sooner this thing comes down, the better. The sooner collapse happens, the better. And so we actually lay out a strategy for a way to achieve that collapse. Because we believe that not only the natural world, but humans will be better off without this culture. You know, so many of us are living in a state of alienation, in a state of dependence upon a system that's killing us, that's poisoning us, that's feeding us, you know, this toxic, this toxic imagery, this toxic culture that really destroys, you know, our internal selves just as it destroys the external world all around us. And we think, you know, it's, it's long past time that this culture came down. Yeah, so there you have it. The prayer for the end of civilization manifesto. <laughs> you know, we, we have to destroy the village in order to save it. And at Integral, we, we want to get over this. I mean, we want to see that, yes, human beings are a natural outgrowth of this amazing blue ball that is falling around the sun that, I don't know, it, it's, the, it's the only one we know of. And this loving mother or father, this guy yet loves us. We're not a mistake. We're not a, a pernicious force. It's almost like w- green 
and this is a critique that conservatives make of the environmental movement, of, of, of liberals in general, is that environmentalism for them is a religion. And it is. Aside from the actual facts of the matter, Green is animated by the same fall from paradise story or a version of the fall from paradise story that also animates the earlier stages of development. And that is, we were you know, born on this Gaia. We were given rules to live by for harmony and sustainability. We disobeyed the rules. And as a result, we are being punished and cast out of the garden and we risk apocalypse unless we change our ways. And changing our ways means getting back to the lap of the mother. And it's stuck in an infantilized relationship with Mother Earth. And we can think about it individually, uh, in, our own, in, in terms of our own individual development. As a little baby, I love my mother because she fulfills my needs. I cling to her and I cry when she leaves me. And I don't worry too much about her needs particularly. <laughs> I don't even notice them, actually. I don't mind that I pee in her face when she's changing my diaper or that I wake her up in the middle of the night when I'm hungry or any of that. And eventually, though, as we grow into older children, we grow out of that. Uh, maybe it's, it's different for everybody. We become a more mature teenager or adult, or sometimes we go well into adulthood. But at some point, we realize, if we're lucky, that our mother is actually a person. Uh, she is a woman, an individual in her own right. She has her own history. She has her own karma. And it's independent of us. And we begin to care for her. And if we live long enough, we take care of her like she took care of us. And um, I think human beings are doing the same thing with Mother Earth or Mother Nature. It's almost like we're in that transition period from teenage to young adulthood, you know, the center of gravity of humanity as a whole. And we're like that slovenly 19-year-old or, okay, 26-year-old who's still living on his mother's couch, eating her food, taking her money, and she's cleaning and doing the laundry and running herself ragged, trying to keep us healthy and happy. And at some point we begin to realize, wait a second, I'm a bad person. <laughs> I'm a slug. I'm bleeding this poor woman dry. And again, I think that's where we are as human beings. And we do have people advance. We have our big brothers and sisters who are saying, hey, stop it. Wake up. Grow up. Look what you're doing to mom. And these are the progressive world-centric people. But you know, what we also have is this whole crowd of younger kids, too, who haven't seen beyond the family. It turns out that our mother is the old woman who lives in the shoe, and she has so many children, she doesn't know what to do. And there's still two or three billion people who have yet to reach modernity, and they want to, and they will. And the moral way forward is for these pre-modern people to have all the opportunities that modern people have. The security, the health, the longevity, the interior freedom, the leisure creating conveniences that the rest of us enjoy, and to do it in a way that doesn't wreck the planet in the process. 
And as I said, this is where I think the eco-modernists really, you know, are bringing something to the table, where they're differentiating this natural space from the wild space. And, you know, they do have a little bit, they have one little reference to what I would call first person. And they, they say, and I'll quote, they say, the case for a more active, conscious, and accelerated decoupling, and again, of this wild space and human space, to spare nature, draws more on spiritual or aesthetic than on material or ut utilitarian arguments. And I do like that they bring it to the first person, but, you know, they sort of promptly go back to nature and the second and third person, and they, they say, what we're calling nature, or even wild nature, encompasses landscapes, seascapes, biomes, and ecosystems that have, in more cases than not, been regularly altered by human influence over centuries and millennia. And these environments will continue to be shaped by local historical and cultural preferences. And they say, while we believe that agricultural intensification for land sparing is key to protecting wild nature, we recognize that many communities will continue to opt for land sharing as opposed to land sparing and seek to conserve wildlife within agricultural landscapes. And of course, that's going to happen. You know, we have these differentiated uh, poles of the natural and artificial world, but then we integrate them. And it makes me think of a beautiful Japanese aesthetic concept. And the Japanese are so good at this sort of thing. And it's called Satoyama. And Satoyama represents the ideal of coexistence between humans and nature. And as they point out, most languages don't even have a word for this. And here's the definition of Satoyama in Japanese. It's defined as a patchwork of human settlement and natural areas, usually located where mountains meet plain. And the natural areas are actively managed using traditional techniques such as controlled burns and planting trees that complement local soil composition, but no one species of vegetation is allowed to dominate. Satayama supports a certain level of biodiversity while simultaneously providing wild foods and other, and other resources for residents. It is, in short, an ancient attempt at sustainability. Of course, as is so often the case, the way forward involves bringing back online the things from the past. And Japan has about 500 organizations dedicated to this Satyama. And Japan is culturally in the vanguard of, you know, humanity right now. So I guess the one last thing I want to emphasize, and I see that we're actually over time here, is that the Eco-Modernist Manifesto debunks this idea that we're going to run into, you know, peak oil and peak mineral use, and we're going to run out of things uh, by, you know, talking about these closed loops around things, which things will be recycled and reused and so forth. But there is one thing that needs to grow and continue to grow exponentially into the future for this to work, and that is energy. Whether it's sustainable farming or water use, desalination, even carbon sequestration, if sometime we deem that that's required to normalize the climate, uh, all of that will require great amounts of energy. 
terabytes of, of power. And as they write, most forms of renewable energy are unfortunately incapable of creating this amount of energy. The scale of land use and other environmental impacts necessary to power the world on biofuels or many other renewables are such that they doubt they could provide a sound pathway to a zero carbon, low footprint future. They do point out one exception, however, and I mentioned it before, it's solar, that high efficiency solar cells produced from earth abundant materials have the potential to provide many tens of terawatts of energy from just a few percent of the earth's surface. So big on pro-solar. And as they write, in the long run, next generation advanced Nuclear fission and fusion represents the most plausible pathways toward the joint goals of climate stabilization and the radically decoupling of humans from nature. This transition will take time, they write. And during this transition, other energy technologies can provide important social and environmental benefits, such as hydroelectric dams, fossil fuels with carbon capture, and biomass energy. So, you know, that's the eco-modernist manifesto. And as I said, in the world of the environmentalists versus the deniers and the skeptics and what passes for, you know, conversation about this in most of the mainstream media, this is, I think, a breath of fresh air. So I recommend it. We'll link to it and, you know, look at it. Uh, Slate Magazine, which is pretty liberal and actually wrote an article that seemed much of a critique at first, they actually ended up saying in the article, after decades of hearing environmentalists rally against things such as no Keystone Pipeline, the change in tone coming from eco-modernists is palpable and welcome. It's inclusive. It's exciting. And it gives environmentalists something to fight for for a change. Plus, the eco-modernists focus on people and planet give the broad middle of the American public a way to embrace ethical economic growth without having to chain themselves to a pipeline. And I like that. I like how it moves beyond the typical green and only green interpretation of environmentalism, which has served to alienate a lot of the modernists and traditionalists. And for more on that, you can look at um, some of the stuff that Steve McIntosh has written at the Institute for Cultural Evolution about how, you know, the movement in green has, or green has to move beyond an anti-modern interpretation. All right. Jeff, they didn't happen to talk about GMOs in the uh, manifesto, did they? No, they hmm. didn't. Uh, but I'm assuming that they are for them as are most scientists. So, um, you know, I, I'm kind of agnostic on that, but I do think that in terms of GMOs, we ought to, I think we ought to have labeling, let people choose, let the market of ideas and freedom and transparency uh, lead the way. And, um, but, you know, from what I've seen scientifically, GMOs are actually doing a lot more, so far, good than harm. Yeah, there's a little discussion in the chat of uh, Integral Radio about them. I think that uh, we, you know, need to have an open mind about that. It's so easy to be reflexive against this stuff. And, um, you know, I think that Integral asks more of us. All right. Well, I am 
terribly over time, but what fun. And I hope that we can have, uh, you know, really move to the next stage of this environmental discussion and wish everybody a belated happy Earth Day, which was April 22nd. I meant to say it then, uh, which is actually the first international holiday. It was set up by the United Nations in 1970. And, you know, maybe in the sacred world to come, when everybody is world-centric, it could be the biggest holiday of them all, where little baby Gaia brings toys to all the children and to the young at heart. So until then, uh, let's keep it integral. This is Jeff Salzman signing off, Daily Evolver. See you next Tuesday night. Take care, people. Have a great week. Thank you.